This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's Sunday, May 19th. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. President Trump faces pushback over his administration's plan to fly undocumented immigrants from the Mexican border to cities across the country. Florida's Republican governor says no. We cannot accommodate in Florida um, just dumping the unlawful migrants um, into our state. That as the president tries to overhaul the legal immigration process and proposes switching to a merit-based system. Our proposal is pro-American, pro-immigrant, and pro-worker. It's just common sense. But Speaker Pelosi calls it dead on arrival. Our guest this morning, Acting Secretary of Homeland Security, Kevin McAleenan. Plus, President Trump insists he doesn't want war with Iran. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff weighs in on the simmering tensions. And Democrats hit the campaign trail. The single most important thing we have to accomplish to get this done is defeat Donald Trump. As the field of candidates expands again, with 24 now running. We'll talk with one of them, New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. All that coming up on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. The Trump administration says it has run out of space to process thousands of migrants crossing the southern border. This week, the Border Patrol started flying undocumented immigrants from facilities in Texas to San Diego. Officials in Florida said Thursday they were informed by Border Patrol that hundreds would soon be transported to the Miami area. Border Patrol officials had also said the administration was considering moving them to Detroit and Buffalo. But late last night, Customs and Border Patrol disputed that in a statement, quote, Contrary to inaccurate reports in the press, CBP has no plans to transport people in our custody to northern or coastal border facilities, which include Border Patrol stations in Florida. We begin today with the Acting Secretary of Homeland Security, Kevin McAleenan, who also serves as the Commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Welcome to the program. Good to be here. Thank you. So first off, we're hoping you can clarify this sure. policy. On Thursday, this is what we heard from the sheriff in Palm Beach County. Earlier this week, the chief of uh, Border Patrol operations out of Miami informed us that their intentions were to bring about 1,000 people every month up into the Broward and Palm Beach County area, 500 to each county, and that these people were going to be brought from the El Paso area that have crossed the border illegally. Is this still being considered in Florida? So let me tell you what's happening on the border. We're seeing 4,000 families a day and, and single adults, unaccompanied children crossing unlawfully between ports of entry. That means uh, CBP right now in Border Patrol stations and at ports of entry has about 16,000 people in custody. The system is full. We've been very clear about that. So what we're trying to do is plan to be able to manage that capacity safely uh, to bring people where we can process them efficiently. As you noted, flights have gone on to San Diego where there's a high capacity border patrol sector. And as a planning factor, we're looking at all options for being able to detain people. But frankly, I respect the sheriff's concerns. Governor DeSantis, Senator Rubio, communities all over this country are extremely generous, but they're not ready to receive this flood of immigration. We need to have a system that works at the border. We're able to prevent people from crossing unlawfully and return them effectively. And that's why we've asked Congress for help. So to be clear, is Florida still being considered? No, 
we're using the southwest border sectors for additional capacity. And it will not be in the future? No, I don't believe so. Uh, we're, we're working with Secretary of Defense to increase our capacity for facilities right now. Uh, we're also working with Mexico to make sure that people can wait in Mexico for their hearings as well. So, so we're going to be focusing on those options. So, so can you explain what changed? We laid out the timeline. There. Right. On Thursday, local officials are told by your agency that this is happening. This morning you tell me it's not. It's not because we looked at it from a planning perspective. What's prudent here? We do have stations in Florida. We have stations on the northern border. They're very small stations. They have a few agents that are busy patrolling their areas. It wasn't gonna be an effective use of resources. But yeah, we had to look at all options. When you have 16,000 people in custody and facilities designed for many fewer, you've gotta look at any planning factor you can. And so, to be clear, because in that statement that we read, it was blamed on inaccurate reports in the media. So the, the reports in the media were that flights had already occurred. Those were not accurate. So that's the part that you're saying the media was inaccurate on. Correct. Flights had already occurred. Correct. But you acknowledge that they were officials from your own agency who said that this was indeed going to happen in Florida. U.S. Customs and, and Border Protection Detroit, did notify. And that Detroit, Buffalo, and Miami. U.S. Customs and Border Protection did notify officials locally in those areas that they were looking at the possibility of doing this. That's correct. Okay. And those cities are also off the table now? Correct. Okay. Yeah. And this decision was made when? The the commissioner, the acting commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection made that decision. Yesterday? Yes. Okay. So those communities now will no longer be expected to take yeah. in some of the migrants that you say are overwhelming facilities yeah, on the border. Th that, that's right. But I think we should really stay focused on what's actually happening on the, on the border. It's a border security and a humanitarian crisis. These flows are unprecedented. They're creating dramatic challenges for law enforcement professionals trying to manage it. But we also are talking about a situation where children are at risk, where children are being smuggled, where children are in the hands of some of the most violent criminal organizations in this hemisphere. Uh, and we haven't had a solution from Congress to stop that. The administration's put forward three approaches this last two weeks, a supplemental to help us manage it, $4.5 billion so we can create the facilities to protect children in custody uh, and provide medical care, provide the processing and provide effective repatriation for those that don't have a right to stay in the U.S. We've worked on an emergency approach that would address the two key drivers of this crisis, the pull factors for families and the pull factors for unaccompanied children. That's the Chairman Graham bill that was introduced on Wednesday. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, in your open, you had the president talking about the more comprehensive immigration approach uh, that would reform the legal system as well as address those vulnerabilities in the, in the unlawful crossings. But in the immediate sense, you're saying that there's a crisis at the border of almost 100,000 a month. Correct. What happens to these people now that you're not putting them in other detention facilities elsewhere in the country? So we're, we've improved our processing. We're working with the Secretary of Defense to add additional facilities in the border area for single adults. That will allow us to increase our ability to hold people safely. We're building soft-sided facilities for families uh, for their processing so that they have more space and a more appropriate setting. Well, that takes so time. We're, yeah, we're doing all these things simultaneously. We're in the, in the two to three weeks out from doing those. In the meantime, we are moving people to sectors that have higher capacity, like San Diego, as you noted. And in that two to three week period, you said, well, what are the standards going to be like in these facilities? I know you've raised concern uh, yeah. about being able to provide for the welfare of these people. I've, I've been raising concerns since last June about the border security and humanitarian crisis. Uh, we went to the border in March and had a press conference when we were over 14,000 in custody. We're now over 16,000 in custody. So, yes, I'm very concerned about the conditions. These are not appropriate facilities uh, for families and children in particular. These are police stations built for single adults, and that's why we've asked Congress for more resources to address it. You've asked for that four and a half billion that Correct. you said there. Correct. Um, what's driving this wave of immigration? Yeah. So the number one factor driving this are, are the pull factors in our system, the vulnerabilities in our legal framework that tell a family that you'll be allowed to stay, you'll be released and allowed to stay, that tell an unaccompanied child that you'll be able to join your family here, a parent who might already be here unlawfully. Uh, we need to change that dynamic. We need to change it quickly. Uh, the other main factor is that there are challenging situations in Central America. Uh, there's poverty and economic opportunity gaps that are stark, uh, and we need to work on both sides of that problem. In Central America, what's Capitol Hill to change our legal framework, and on the border where we're increasing security significantly, uh, both through additional border barrier, partnering with the uh, Department mm -hmm. of Defense, and adding agents and officers and technology. Have you then told the president that you disagree with his suggestion to cut foreign aid to those three main countries? 
The president's looking for accountable partners and programs that have a return on investment for American interests. I think if we can find those programs that are working, that are addressing the, the push factors for migration, I think we're going to be able to continue to partner. I'm going to be down there in, in two weeks uh, in Central America, working with my counterparts at, at the Ministry of Interior and Public Safety level, talking about increasing border security on the Guatemala-Honduran border, on the Guatemalan-Mexican border, starting at the source of origin with the smugglers that are, are enticing people into this cycle to address their security concerns. Uh, back to what Americans can expect to be happening in their communities. Um, the president has said on at least three different occasions, as recently as April 27th, that he wants to ship migrants into sanctuary cities. This has injected this idea of politics into that. This came from the president himself. Let's listen. Now, we're sending many of them to sanctuary cities. Thank you very much. They're not too happy about it. I'm proud to tell you that was actually my sick idea. Do you support that? So as we've already talked about, we are, we are balancing operationally the processing of people at the border. We have sent flights to California. California is a sanctuary state by law. Uh, so that's technically correct. The other part is that the so 10 of the top 11 destinations for, for immigrants that are released in the U.S., they're going to sanctuary cities because that's a magnet. They're providing uh, an incentive to come live in those areas. And that's what's happening. But your agency transporting people to these cities our, our is transportation that is based on operational necessity, capacity to process safely. That's what we're doing. So no is the answer Correct. to the question. Okay. So when the president um, speaks about all of these immigration changes, I know you are frustrated that there is not more immediacy in terms of Congress actually right. acting. When the president went to the Rose Garden, though, a lot of what he laid out was about legal immigration, and it requires Congress to comply right. and to be a partner. There was really no outreach to concerns Democrats have about things like DACA protections and the like. How do you get Congress to do what you're asking them? So first of all, the president in the Rose Garden made a clear distinction between this broader effort that's gonna take some time working with Congress and the immediate bill that he's asked for. He referenced Chairman Graham, Judiciary Committee in the Senate, his approach that's on the table right now, targeting the two main drivers for this flow. So that, that's out there. That's ready to be negotiated and, and, and hopefully passed. Uh, we also have asked for the supplemental two weeks ago. Uh, There's a, a lot of money that we need right now to take care of people that are crossing the border appropriately and make sure we're repatriating those that don't have a right to stay in the U.S. We, we need Congress's help for both of those right now. Right. Uh, but the four and a half billion you're saying you need right now. The rest is, a, is an ideal. Um, you've got an incredibly difficult job right. on one of the most emotionally fraught issues there is. The Washington Post reported that you had threatened to quit because of a, a knife fight over immigration with hardliner Stephen Miller. Does you being here today mean you won that fight? Look, I'm not going to talk about rumors or any alleged internal conversations. What I see is a cabinet team that's pulling in the same direction to make this crisis uh, uh, mitigated. I'm working with the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, the Attorney General, Health and Human Services Secretary. I met with all of them in the first several weeks. The White House is supporting our initiatives. We have a robust strategy of action. We've put forward a legislative component. We've changed our dynamic at the border with increasing MPP, with prosecuting uh, child smugglers at the border. We're, we're moving out. We're acting with a lot of support from the White House and the Cabinet. I'm not worried about alleged internal conversations. So you didn't threaten to quit? I did not threaten to quit, no. You will still be the person uh, trying to lead this charge. I'm going to work on solving this problem as long as I have that opportunity, no question. All right. Thank you very much for coming in and for underscoring uh, the immediacy of this. And we do want to get uh, some input from a key uh, member of Congress. That is a Democrat, Adam Schiff, the chair of the House Intelligence Committee. He joins us here in studio as well. Congressman, let's pick up right on this. Um, you heard this description of an immediate crisis, this ask for four and a half billion dollars that the administration says it, it so desperately needs, almost 100,000 people per month. Why isn't there more immediate action from Democrats? Well, there is a humanitarian crisis at the border, um, but part of this crisis is one of the administration's own making. Uh, this is administration, as you point out, that is saying we're going to cut off assistance to these uh, Central American uh, countries that would be useful in trying to stem this flow of migration, dealing with the problems. Uh, the, the acting director talked about the pull 
but little about the push. And the push factor is that the violence in Central America is pushing people uh, towards our country who are escaping uh, violence uh, and threats to their children. Um, we need to deal with that, and threats to cut off aid isn't helping. Uh, when you look at uh, El Salvador, for example, they are making progress. We should be expanding assistance like that, mirroring those programs in other countries. The administration isn't doing this, and, and what's more... But what about the $4.5 billion needed for people who've already made it to U.S. soil and that, that are arguably, it's up to the American people to provide for? We're discussing adding to the emergency supplemental appropriations bill of funding for this humanitarian crisis, and I think there's a receptivity to do that, to deal with the humanitarian issues, not though just to send more money to build a wall, not to just merely de uh, um, detain people and add to the incarceration of people. You know, we learned just within the last few days that the number of children that have been separated from the parents could be uh, thousands more than we learned. The administration still doesn't know where they are. Uh, and you see this kind of disarray in what the administration is doing, uh, announcing they're going to send people to Florida, then then pulling that back. And, and by the way, the only reason they're pulling that back is because a Republican governor uh, has uh, challenged this idea. Uh, so this this looks a lot like the sanctuary cities kind of pushed by the president, which is we'll send them to whatever states we don't care about. Um, and if we get pushback from a Republican governor, we'll reconsider. Uh, but again, you know, one of the steps they're doing at the, the border that's making this so much worse is they're slowing down the processing of uh, asylum seekers at legal ports of entry, which only encourages people to go uh, between the legal ports of entry. So lots of counterproductive steps by the administration that seems really intent mm -hmm. on making this problem worse. Uh, I want to ask you about Iran. You're one of the very few members of Congress who's briefed on the intelligence that uh, the U.S. responded to with this military buildup. I know you can't talk about classified matters, but is the military response thus far commensurate with the threat that was described to you? Well, look, the, the intelligence does show an increased threat, uh, and it would be, I think, catastrophic for Iran to uh, use violence against any of our troops, any of our allies. But it's not just about the intelligence. Uh, what is taking place now was all too predictable. Um, the steps the administration has taken to uh, renege on the Iran agreement, to try to force Europe to renege on the Iran agreement, to try to force Iran to withdraw from the agreement, to go back to the path of enrichment, the designation of the IRGC as a terrorist group, the belligerent rhetoric from the administration, from Pompeo, from Bolton. The policy all of, decisions. All of these policy decisions have led us to a state where confrontation is far more likely, and that cannot be ignored. When you take a series of steps that, yes, ratchet up tensions, you shouldn't be surprised when the intelligence tells you, hey, tensions have been ratcheted up, it's now more a risk of confrontation. And this is why our allies are departing from us. This is why our allies uh, increasingly are isolating us and not Iran. Uh, and I don't see how these policies have made this country any more safe. They haven't. Uh, and I think we miss that bigger picture when we simply focus on is the intelligence accurate or inaccurate. Mm -hmm. The problem is that this ratcheting up of tensions was all too predictable, uh, all too calculated by people like Bolton and Pompeo. Uh, and it has led us to the, the precipice of potential catastrophe. Uh, Speaker Pelosi has previously said um, that for her, the standard for impeachment requires a bipartisan level of support for it. We saw yesterday the very first Republican, just Justin Amash, who is a libertarian. He is no fan of the president, but still a Republican. He suggested that the president uh, has uh, carried out impeachable behavior. Does this meet the Democratic standard now to consider and move forward with an impeachment inquiry? Well, I think that what the speaker has referred to, uh, and I have as well, is can an impeachment even be potentially successful in the Senate? Uh, we see no signs of that yet. Uh, and, you know, I respect what Justin Amash uh, is doing and has said. He showed more courage uh, than any other Republican in the House or Senate. But what may be pushing us in the direction of impeachment uh, in any event uh, has less to do with Justin Amash and more to do with the fact that the administration is engaging in a maximum obstructionism campaign against you Congress. You do think there is more of a movement I, I towards impeachment? I think that we are seeing more members that recognize that the administration is acting in a lawless fashion. Uh, essentially, having obstructed justice is now obstructing Congress and our lawful function. 
And if we conclude that there's no other way to do our jobs, no other way to do the oversight, no other way to show the American people what this president has done, his, his unethical and illegal acts, as outlined in the Mueller report, then we may get there. Um, you're, what, what you're suggesting, just to clarify, is that by opening up an inquiry into impeachment or proceedings into impeachment, it would allow you to get the information you've been, and evidence you've been asking for. Uh, it may. And it provides it, a tool, it, even it, if it fails. It does. It provides an additional tool. And what we have been doing is we have been gradually escalating the, the tactics we need to use to get information for the American people. So we began by asking for voluntary cooperation, and that was not forthcoming. We followed with subpoenas. We followed with contempt. We may follow with inherent contempt, and we may have to follow with impeachment. Uh, there may be an odd confluence of interest here between the Trump uh, administration and people around the president who want him impeached because they think it's politically advantageous. Uh, and an increasing number of Democrats and maybe Republicans who feel this president's conduct is so incompatible with office, incompatible with our system of checks and balances, uh, that if the only way that we can do our oversight is through an impeachment proceeding, then maybe we have to go down that road. But I think it'll be mm -hmm. important to show the American people this was a decision made reluctantly. Okay. This is a decision forced upon us rather than something we were eager to embrace. Congressman, we have to leave it there. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading. And so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako. And we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com slash save for 40% off. Legacybox.com slash save. We turn now to New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. She's running for the Democratic presidential nomination, and she joins us this morning from New York. Senator, 10 states have tightened restrictions on abortion in the past year, and others may follow. I know you flew to Georgia this week to protest it. Uh, this is one of the most emotionally charged, divisive issues in politics, and it's a fight the president wants to have because it resonates with his supporters. So why are you embracing it? This is nothing short of an all-out assault on women's reproductive freedom, an effort to take away our basic human rights and civil rights. And make no mistake, uh, the 30 states that are trying to unwind uh, abortion rights are trying to get rid of Roe v. Wade. It's, it's nothing more complex than that. And they do not believe that women should have the right to make the most intimate, personal life and death decisions. And I think it's untenable. And I hope America's women are paying attention because President Trump has started a war on America's women. And if it's a fight he wants to have, it's a fight he's gonna have and he's going to lose. But you have said that if you're elected president, you would codify Roe v. Wade. To do that, you would need a Congress that agrees to follow your lead on that. Are you assuming a, a Democratic uh, Congress to follow you in 2020? I do. Uh, we already took back the House in 2018. Women across this country um, have been marching since President Trump uh, became president and then took their views and voices to the ballot box, electing 120 women uh, to Congress who support women's reproductive freedom and reproductive rights. Uh, I think that trend is going to continue. Uh, we saw a surge in women's votes. I think that will continue in 20. And hopefully we can actually flip the Senate as well and take back the presidency. Now, the, the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, uh, Tom Perez, has said every Democrat should support abortion rights. And that was uh, met with some outcry because it was seen as, as a litmus test. Now, for your party to win, you need to be able to attract uh, more people to it. Can you say that there is room in the Democratic Party for people who have a moral objection to abortion? And is there room on your ticket for supporters like that? 
So for voters across America and for individuals, of course you can have your personal views on any issue. There's nothing wrong uh, with having a, a religious perspective on this issue. But what I do not accept is any Democratic leader or candidate to not believe in full civil rights and human rights for women. We cannot have Democrats who are running for office who do not believe in basic uh, health care and civil rights for women. It, it's just untenable and it's unacceptable. And I will not support a candidate. And I do not believe any candidate running for president should be undermining women's reproductive freedom and our basic human rights. Senator, we have to take a real quick break, uh, but we'll continue this conversation on the other side of it. We'll be right back. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. Face the Nation, we continue our conversation with New York Senator and 2020 contender Kirsten Gillibrand. Uh, I want to ask you now about immigration. Uh, Buffalo, New York, in your home state, uh, was one of the locations that Customs and Border Patrol officials had said they were looking at as a place to move some of these migrants who'd been captured at the border into detention facilities uh, in your home state. What have you actually been informed of uh, that may be under consideration and may be happening. I've been informed of absolutely nothing by this administration. And the truth is President Trump's immigration policy is inhumane, ineffective, and wrong. Uh, I cannot tell you how infuriating it is for our president to still be separating children from their parents at our border in the most inhumane way and then locking them up and paying for it, paying for-profit prison systems to do this. As president of the United States, I would not fund any for-profit prisons. I would not lock up these families. I would have a humane immigration policy where people seeking asylum and people seeking refuge in this country would have lawyers and have a proper asylum process. We need real immigration judges, which we don't have, uh, that are appointed for life and outside the political process. I think what President Trump's done on immigration is divisive and hurtful and harmful to our national security. Do you then uh, support something like Senator Graham uh, has proposed, which would, you mentioned family separation, to stop uh, what the administration has used uh, as a justification for that. They have said, look, legally we're restricted to only keeping people in detention together for 20 days. You can't move I them through the process I wouldn't keep them in detention fast. at all. But you oppose even what the Obama administration did in terms of keeping families together or keeping them together for a longer period of time in detention? I wouldn't, as president of the United States, I wouldn't use the detention system at all. In fact, what I would do is actually fund the border security measures that are anti-terrorism, anti-human trafficking, anti-drug trafficking, uh, and anti-gun trafficking. And I would defund these for-profit prison systems that are harming children and harming families who are seeking our asylum. But if so, someone it, so is seeking asylum, I would assign them a lawyer. Homeland Security, though, saying hundreds of thousands of people are, are crossing the border and they need to go somewhere before their asylum claims are actually heard, what would you do with them? 
they don't need to be incarcerated. They can, if they're given a lawyer and given a process, they will follow it. They can go into the community in the way we used to handle these cases under the Department of Justice. Should the Trump administration get some of the $4.5 billion they say they need to improve humanitarian conditions? We can work with the Trump administration on two things. We can work with them on funding anti-terrorism and border protection when it comes to human and drug trafficking and gun trafficking. We can work with them on resources for more humanitarian treatment, uh, for medical treatment, for um, support for humane um, processes. But I do not believe we should be funding for-profit prison systems in any circumstance. So you would oppose moving any migrants to the state of New York? What the state of New York does well is we, te we actually take refugee families into our communities. We would be delighted to take refugee families into cities like Buffalo and Syracuse and Rochester and Albany. Your campaign um, has yet to reach the 65,000 uh, individual donors that you would need to qualify to uh, be on that first debate stage. Um, why do you think that is? Is, is the large number of candidates uh, hurting campaigns like yours? Well, all I would say to your viewers is if you like anything that I've talked about today, go to KirstenGillibrand.com and support my campaign. Uh, this is a marathon and not a sprint, and we are building support all across the country in all 50 states, and I hope your viewers will join our efforts. But is the fact that we have nearly two dozen candidates hurting the Democratic bid here? I don't think so. I think primaries are so healthy for our party. It allows candidates to talk about their vision for America. My vision is to make sure we deal with the real problems this country is facing. So you think you will make it to that debate stage? I do, especially with the support of your viewers. Senator, thank you. Thank you. Uh, that was not a show endorsement, but that was a pitch from the senator. Uh, we'll have uh, to welcome to the program now our political analysis. Peter Baker is the chief White House correspondent at The New York Times, and an expanded version of his book, Obama, The Call of History, has just been released. Kristen Saltis-Anderson is joining us for the first time. She's a Republican pollster and a columnist with The Washington Examiner. Edward Wong is a diplomatic and international correspondent at The New York Times. And Jamel Bowie is a columnist with The New York Times and also a CBS News political analyst. Uh, let's pick up where we just left off with the senator, uh, Jamel. The, senator Gillibrand says it is not hurting the Democratic bids, the fact that they have nearly two dozen or two dozen <laughs> candidates, I guess we are totally at, at 24 now. Uh, I mean, is she being kind there? Is it hurting campaigns like hers? I think it may be just because there's only the pool of voters is only so big and there are so many choices that maybe in the absence of five or ten of these candidates, there may have been more possible support for Senator Gillibrand. But now that there are so many, it's harder for her to get traction. Uh, but as, in terms of kind of the Democratic Party as a whole and sort of it trying to figure out its direction over the next year, I think that this large primary is probably a good thing. It's good for Democrats in, uh, in 2016, for Republicans for that matter, to hash out their differences, hash out these issues and try to figure out who might be best equipped to run in a general election. Well, Peter, You've covered many presidencies, many campaigns. Uh, we saw the vice president, former vice president Joe Biden at rallies yesterday talking about how he planned to challenge the president and his strong economic message. Yeah. And that's basically to say, well, you should thank Obama. Yeah, yeah. Well, look. Does that work? I mean, to some extent, obviously. He's focused on Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. He's focused on those states that the Democrats shouldn't have lost but by, you know, traditional uh, history uh, and trying to hit them with the economic message because otherwise Trump is going to be uh, selling the idea that he has made America great again through the economy. And, and Biden's got to undercut that if he can. But it's a tough sell because, uh, you know, at a certain point, three, four years into a presidency, you, you start saying it has to be, you know, the current guy, not just the previous guy. And, and, and uh, uh, Biden's going to try to make the case that uh, he can do something that other Democrats can't, which is to take on Trump directly uh, in a very, you know, head-on-head -head kind of way. Kristen, you heard from the president this morning on Twitter, as we often do early on Sundays, uh, basically saying that he's not getting credit 
for the great economy. Is that still the central issue or are some of these more culture war issues, abortion, immigration, going to be what helps him uh, in this reelection bid? Well, there's no doubt that the economy is the issue where the president pulls the most strongly. When you ask who do you trust or do you trust the president on certain issues, uh, the economy tends to be the one where he has the clear sort of majority saying, yes, we think he's at least doing a good job on that. But it doesn't necessarily have as much emotional resonance. And while the conventional wisdom is that people vote with their pocketbooks, that if they like the way things are going, they'll want to continue four more years. What we've really seen is that with the economy getting so much better, it's actually fallen in the list of sort of people's top issues. Now you tend to see issues like health care and immigration. Um, and so I actually think perhaps less so than some of the really hot button issues like abortion. I do believe health care is going to be one of the issues that really helps decide 2020, because even as people are feeling sort of better about the economy, unemployment is lower. If it still costs a lot for them to get health care and it still seems as though Republicans uh, do not have an answer for that, uh, that's going to be a challenge facing the president in 2020. On the issue of abortion, the president wants to have this argument. He's been tweeting about it. And as you just heard, one Democratic candidate thinks this is also something uh, that should be talked about on the campaign trail. What is behind this right now as we look at the state level at these tightened restrictions? Is it all just a cynical bet that this becomes something that the Supreme Court ultimately gets to and that this resonates for the president and some of his evangelical supporters? Well, something else that the president has tweeted out within the last couple of hours is my read was sort of pushing back on the Alabama bill, which sort of had no uh, exceptions for things like rape, incest, et cetera, by sort of saying, look, that's not where I am. I'm where Ronald Reagan was. Really, uh, I think, correctly assessing that the Alabama law, by taking a position really only held by 15 percent of Americans, was creating a wedge within the pro-life movement. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a big shift. I mean, after the passage of laws in uh, New York and Virginia earlier this year, there had been a sense that there was momentum swinging toward the pro-life side, that the pro-choice side had gone too far. This really sends the pendulum back the other direction. And I think that's why you saw the president with that tweet kind of distancing himself um, from what happened in Alabama. But Ed, even in foreign policy, uh, this question of abortion is something that has been implemented, at least on that level, the president can tighten in terms of foreign aid, uh, how that's used abroad with this so-called Mexico City policy. Um, it, it, it's not just a theoretical debate at this point. It's not just a state level. It is something that the administration is putting its shoulder behind. Right. We saw um, Pompeo announce earlier this spring that they would um, cut off funding to any organization, foreign organization that sort of promoted uh, policies that might be involved, uh, that might involve abortion. And I think that uh, the administration is trying to shore up the evangelical voter base as well as other um, supporters that believe strongly in these policies through its foreign policy. And Pompeo has been very active on that front. I think just to, to pick up on the, the domestic politics of this, it's very clear that President Trump believes that his reelection will depend on kind of massive mm -hmm. base mobilization. But what's interesting about this push to restrict abortion is that part of his appeal in 2016 was that he was somewhat heterodox on social issues. He didn't appear to be kind of a traditional conservative Republican. And so taking this approach may end up, you know, if, you, if you think like a little dialectically about it, may end up uh, creating the kind of backlash among some of his own voters that may end up damaging him in 2020. Among those uh, non-college working class whites who aren't as socially conservative as, as white evangelicals, mm -hmm. uh, but supported Trump nonetheless. But I want to ask you uh, the same question I put to Senator Gillibrand, which was, is there room in the Democratic Party for people who morally object to abortion? I think there's certainly room within the Democratic Party for um, voters who are have conservative views on abortion. If you look at, for example, Latino and African-American voters who tend to have more conservative views on abortion at, attached to the sort of higher religious attendance, they're clearly voting for Democrats. It's just not, if you are a voter whose principal kind of political issue, what's most salient for you is abortion, then there probably isn't very much room in the Democratic Party for you if you are an anti-abortion pro-life voter. But if you are someone who maybe has those views, but it's less it's mm -hmm. lower on the list of salient issues, then there's plenty of space for you. I want to take a break and come back, talk about some of the other issues of the week, including the threat posed by Iran in a moment. Stay with us. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. 
Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. And we're back now with our panel. Uh, there's so much to digest um, from this week and even just from the show on immigration, on Iran. Ed, Edward Wong, I want to go to you on the threat. Um, Adam Schiff, who is one of the very few congresspeople actually briefed on the intelligence the administration acted on regarding Iran, didn't dispute what he was told. He criticized policymaking. What do we actually know about the threat posed by Iran that led to this military response by the Trump administration? Uh, I think that officials picked up on several intelligence strands that were coming through um, right around the time of May 3rd. Um, one was that there were missiles being loaded onto small wooden boats in the Persian Gulf um, by Iranian forces. Another was that there was some chatter that um, among militia groups in Iraq that they might try and attack American bases or facilities, the embassy in Baghdad, possibly the consulate in Erbil. Um, and so the I think the, uh, some officials who picked up on this said that they wanted uh, some sort of deterrent against Iran. They wanted messaging signaling to send to Iran to deter them from doing this. Now, the question is whether someone like Bolton and possibly Pompeo took that and decided to um, push forward in a way that made Pentagon officials and others uncomfortable, sort of like putting um, them in a position of sort of ramping up deployment forces, um, coming up with plan, military plans that made other officials uncomfortable. Because intelligence and Pentagon officials have always been pushing, have been pushing back the spring against certain um, policies like the designation of the uh, Revolutionary Guards as a terrorist organization. They've been pushing back against this thing. These policies will put troops and um, officers in danger, and then the administration went ahead and did that. And so when you see reports, as we saw in the New York Times, of 120,000 troops being reviewed, it sounds like, reading between the lines, you're suggesting that was leaked to kill that response? I'm not sure. Um, I uh, can't say who the sources were, but there's, uh, you know, there's various motivations for people giving out that kind of information. Might be, some people interpret it as, um, giving it out so that there can be a public debate on it, that there hasn't been a public debate on what to do with troop deployments or planning. And I think that people are aware very much of what happened in 2002, 2003 in the run-up to the Iraq war and that they think that there should be a public conversation over this. Peter, I mean, you wrote this book about the Obama administration um, and the call of history. This was such a landmark portion of the former president's mm -hmm. foreign policy, right. cooling and controlling this one part of the threat posed by them, the nuclear program. Is this like the key question um, for all the Democrats running right now? Do you rejoin this deal? Mm -hmm. Is it possible? And, and how do you do that in a way that doesn't just look like it's trying to revive the Obama legacy? Yeah, no, it's a great question because, in fact, as you're right, it is one of the big foreign policy legacies he left behind. The first thing, one of the first things that President Trump decided to undo. I think most Democrats out there running have said or will say, likely to say, that they would get back into it in some form or another. Whether or not um, you actually can. Whether you can or not. And the Iranians are clearly banking on that. I mean, the reason why they have been restrained for the most part over the last year, they've not rushed toward back toward a nuclear program, at least according to reports that we've seen, is because they seem to be wait, wanting to wait out Trump to see if they can't uh, get a new president come in in 2021 that they can uh, uh, do another deal with. Um, but it's really interesting because this is where Obama, you know, this whole question of the last week of so of, of a confrontation with Iran gets at where Obama and Trump were, at least in theory, more alike, mm -hmm. which is in very different ways. Trump is more bombastic and, and, and Obama is more intellectualized. But they both talked about, you know, we're tired of these endless wars, right? President Trump came to office on the idea of pulling out of this Middle East kind of quagmire rather than getting further in. And he's now surrounded by people like John Bolton and Mike Pompeo who are egging him on the other direction or saying, look, this is a big threat. You need to be more assertive. Mm -hmm. And it's a real test for this president at this point uh, where he plans to go. 
Well, it's something uh, you point out those similarities. I think it's going to be fascinating to finally watch a foreign policy debate with the Democratic uh, candidates to hear how they'll differentiate themselves. Thanks to all of you, and we'll be right back in a moment. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time, and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love. Or visit www.pacificlife.com. We're joined now by author David Marinus. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who's perhaps best known for his biographies of Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. But his latest book, A Good American Family, tells the story of his father, Elliot Marinus, and how the Red Scare of the 1940s and 1950s changed his life. Good to have you here. Thank you, Margaret. So the Good American Family is actually your American family. Yes, the title comes from a member of the House Un-American Activities Committee who in 1951 gave a speech and said that he was shocked that anyone from a quote-unquote good American family could be affiliated at any time with the Communist Party. And the whole book is a point of showing that our family was a good American family, even though my father and my mother at one point were members of the U.S. Communist Party. Well, you write in the book um, about this idea of un-American. You talk about the hearings before Congress. Yes. What was that like for your father going through that kind of questioning? Did you ever really sit and talk to him about that? You know, my dad really didn't want to talk about it by the time I was, I was two years old when this happened. And 63 years later, as I was starting to research this book, um, because before that, you know, I'd written all these biographies of strangers to me, like Barack Obama and Bill Clinton and Vince Lombardi, who became familiar to me by the time I was done. Mm -hmm. This time I was starting with someone who I thought was intimately, I was intimately familiar with. I was worried, would he be a stranger by the time I was done? Because I didn't really know this part of our family's past. I was at the National Archives, and I found there the statement that my father wanted to read to the committee at the hearing, and he was not allowed to unless he confessed and named names, which he would not do. And it was in that statement um, that he never got the chance to read but had yes. prepared that he said, I would rather have my children miss a meal or two now than have them grow up in the gruesome, fear-ridden future for America projected by the members of the House Committee on Un-American Activities. My Americanism has been questioned, and to properly measure a man's Americanism, you must know the whole pattern of a life. It was a very powerful statement, and it was the statement of, a, of an American citizen, of a man who had been the commander of an all-black unit in World War II in the Pacific, being called un-American by a chairman of the committee who had, in his earlier life, been a member of the Ku Klux Klan briefly. And so that juxtaposition of what does it really mean to be an American um, is as relevant today as it was in the 1950s. You know, I don't write about today in the book, but the echoes are there throughout. What, what specifically the echoes? I mean, these days you hear the term socialism thrown about, and it doesn't necessarily have the same resonance, clearly, as during this heated moment in time, but it still has a stigma attached to it. Well, it has a stigma attached to it by people who wanted to have a stigma attached to it. You, you can talk to uh, people 35 and under, and it's a completely different definition and feeling about socialism. Um, but I would say that the, the stronger echoes are not about socialism, but about the use of fear um, as a manipulative tool in the political process, which is what Joseph McCarthy, the senator, used during the 1950s and which the president is using today, demonizing others, um, stretching the truth and facts, in an effort only for political purposes. Did you feel like you were writing a commentary on today? You're drawing these, these parallels. Yeah. But, but this was a different uh, time. 
the threat felt immediate. There yeah. was a, a, something to be blamed. Um, and right now what you're talking about is, is kind of an argument amongst ourselves. In some ways, oh, of course they're different. I mean, history doesn't repeat itself. You know, there, there are echoes of it, but it's not the exact same thing ever. And as a matter of fact, it's upside down now, right? I mean, here you have the president um, using the term McCarthyism and calling the attacks on him a witch hunt. In writing this, was this sort of therapeutic for you? That's a great question. You know, I, I, I didn't think it would be, but it was. Um, it really helped me understand myself, my family, and my country. You know, all of us hear these stories about our own family. Um, you know, they're part myth and part true, and we never go back and explore them. I had done that with strangers, but to do it um, with my own family really helped me understand so much about myself. So in that sense, it was therapeutic. Did your father, towards the end of his life, have, have anger about this, or did he feel, um, you know, his worldview evolved or it changed? Did he ever say, I'm no longer, you know, subscribing to this worldview represented by communism. I made a mistake here. He never said I made a mistake here, but he did say at one point that he was stubborn in his ignorance in his earlier life. That's about it. But, but it was never a matter of, uh, of repentance because the, he, he evolved, but he never became bitter. He never wanted to destroy this country. He just wanted to make it better. What made you follow in his footsteps and become a journalist? I was too stupid to do anything else. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I loved writing from a very early age, and my father certainly didn't discourage that. It's in, it's in my blood. My mother was a book editor. My grandfather was a printer. My dad was a newspaper man, so I followed into that. All right. David Marinus, thank you very much for thank sharing you, your Margaret. story and that of your family. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching, and we want to wish a very happy birthday to our executive producer, Mary Haker. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Acting Secretary of Homeland Security, Kevin McAleenan, House Intelligence Committee Chairman, Congressman Adam Schiff, Democrat of California, and New York Democratic Senator and 2020 presidential hopeful, Kirsten Gillibrand. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow the show and CBS News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.